Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Thanks for the song. Thanks for joining in and the birthday wishes, both here and now and on Facebook. Appreciate it. And text and email and stuff like that. It's, uh, I was having a brief conversation with my little sister, Lisa, uh, you know, who's only 50. Uh, uh, it's weird, you know, uh, as I get older. I, had, I remember mentioning this in a sermon many years ago. The first time this sensation hit me, I was 27 years old. And when I was 27, it hit me that I had specific memories of my dad when he was 27. And that made things weird. And uh, the older I get, the more recent those types of memories become. Because as you know, those of you who are at least you know, 30 or so, time kind of compresses as you get older. And when I think about my dad at 54, you know, when my dad was... Uh, 54 he was uh, well when he was 53 he did my wedding and that's 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 it's just when he was 54 I was moving back to St. Joe and uh, a year later I would become his youth pastor and this all just seems like yesterday and uh, wow you don't believe it when you're 18 but you sure do the older you get you really believe the Bible it says what is your life it is a vapor that vanishes away and that's not a, it shouldn't be a depressing thing. We're supposed to see that in the light of eternity and make the most of the time we have. And uh, I'm saying this to all the wrong people because the young people are back there and back there. But uh, train your children well, right? Radless, wave your hand around at least for a second. There's a couple. Wow, man, it's good to see you guys. There is a couple that actually uh, absolutely exemplified service and loyalty. You know, they didn't just come to church. They did everything. I can remember when they did youth group way back when. And when they did super church for many years, they did praise and worship for many years, and and taught Sunday school, whatever needed to be done, they were there. And God bless people like you, and God reproduced people like you. Thank God for people like you. So, man, it's good to have you with us tonight. Isn't it good to have them with us tonight? Man, oh man, I mean, God bless you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, now you can go back to paying attention to the sermon because we're about there. Uh, it's good to have all of you here tonight. It really is. And I'm going to be uh, speaking tonight out of Psalm 16. As I have uh, mentioned in uh, several recent Wednesday nights, Wednesday nights will usually find us in the Psalms of the Gospels. And, uh, and or, or on a healing message. And tonight we're in the Psalms. And I was reading Psalm 16. And uh, I even asked Kay, I said, when was the last time I preached on this? Because I'm sure I did. Uh, there, you know, I'll read through the Psalms. Uh, and I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah, I got, I got a, something about it grabbed me. But it grabbed me so hard that I was sure it grabbed me before. So she came into my office with a list. Bless her heart. Man, she did this tonight. Of all the psalms I have preached, and this was not on the list, amazingly enough. So this is fresh stuff. And I'm sure you'll hear some stuff that you've heard before. Uh, but I'm preaching, I'm preaching out of a text I have not preached before. In Psalm 16, go ahead and open your Bibles there. 
This is a psalm of David. And I want to, uh, this, is, this is known as uh, one of the top ten psalms uh, because of its uh, messianic references, uh, among other things. And uh, the thing that really grabbed me about it as I was reading it was, you know, especially because of the time we've been spending lately in Romans. You know, we've really slowed down in our journey through the Bible. And here we are in the book of Romans. We just finished part nine, I think. Uh, Part nine or ten, I think nine. And we're not done. You know, we're just now getting into the practical application of Romans. But all of this doctrine about the doctrine of grace and the doctrine of election and the doctrine of Israel and all these things that really do cause us to question some things, you know, digging into some of these deeper issues, and the answers are right there in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And as I read this psalm, what grabs me is I'm just really struck by, here's David, an Old Testament man who really has a grip on the New Testament doctrine of grace. Here's a man under the law who loved the law, but who understood back then, back then in 1000 B.C., that the law wasn't going to save him. He was a man after God's own heart. That was what God said about him to Samuel. And we're going to see some of that here in this psalm. In the very first verse, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. And we, we know, uh, you probably know, as you, uh, if you've read through the Psalms, there are times when David, uh, he doesn't ever really, I don't think, sound self-justifying, but he does claim loyalty to the law. I have kept your law, I have done, you know, I've, I've maintained my righteousness, O Lord. Uh, but here, I think, you really hear his heart. When he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust, he's not saying, preserve me, O God, because I've been good. Preserve me, O God, because I've been a good king. Preserve me, O God, because I've kept your law. Preserve me, O God, because I'm trusting in you to preserve me. You're the only one who can preserve me. He kind of uh, em- emphasizes this a little bit later in, uh, or here in the next few verses when he says in verse 2, actually in this very next verse, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. When he says, Lord, you are my Lord, uh, we lose a lot of that in the English translation. If, if you uh, remember, we talked about this many, uh, well, probably years ago at this point. When you read in the Old Testament particularly, when you see the word Lord, and I'm sure this varies from translation to translation, but when you see the word Lord in all caps, but it's like a big L and a little O-R-D, but it's still all caps, that is the trans, that, that's what they have done when it's the name of God, Yahweh. Or Jehovah, okay? Uh, they would not write the name of God. So they, the English translators translated it, Lord. But they always put it in all caps. But you'll see, Lord, you are my Lord. The next Lord is not in all caps. So he's not saying, Yahweh, you are Yahweh. He's saying, Yahweh, you are my Adonai. Yahweh, you are my Adonai. And Adonai means master, keeper, maintainer, all right? So Lord, uh, Yahweh, the one true God, you are my master. Uh, now, my soul, you have said to, my, uh, said to Yahweh, you are my master. My goodness, this is the part I really wanted you to see, my goodness is nothing apart from you. This is a very New Testament concept. It's a very Book of Romans concept. Uh, when 
David, who inhabited a world that was uh, the Jewish world, which was ruled by law, there were many people who I'm sure labored under the uncomfortable assumption that in order to be righteous before God, they had to keep the law perfectly. And there were some who did it much, who, who were much more close to perfect than there were others. How many were there that kept it perfectly? There were none. We know that, right? But David, who loved the law, who loved the Lord, and we know he didn't keep it perfectly, but he's a good man, right? I mean, even just comparing him to other men, he was a, he was a great man. And what did he say about his own goodness? My goodness is nothing apart from you. This really, um, well, of course it goes right along with what we've been saying in Romans. When we talk about the new birth, when, when, when Paul talked about um, the Jews, which we're going to get here in just a second, he made it very clear that the law was never meant to provide a way for men to get to God. Here is God's law. Here are his standards. Just do these things and you will be righteous. It was never possible. So that was clearly never God's plan. David knew that. And David knew, even though he doesn't say it here, he says it in other places, his righteousness was greater than other men's righteousness in terms of the external evidence. But he knew that when it came right, uh, right down to it, when he was talking to God, my righteousness is nothing apart from you. The only thing that mattered was that God had chosen him, that God had declared him righteous. Let's read on here. I'll come back to that concept here in just a second. In verse 3, it says, As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And the saints, that's kind of a New Testament word too. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the ones who are set apart, sanctified ones, would be who the saints are. Who's a saint in this, in this room tonight? If you're born again, you are. You are. We, you know, the, there's a sort of a Catholic version of that word or a, even a secular version of that word. When we talk about, oh, he's just a saint, we mean he's a really good person. Uh, but saint, from the spiritual standpoint, is anybody who has been washed in the blood of the Lamb, set aside, set apart for the kingdom of God. And that's all God's doing. And thank God it is. In uh, Romans chapter 9, this is one of my favorite passages. I don't now know how hard it hit you, but it was one of, the favorite, one of my favorite things that we came across uh, in our study of Romans so far. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, it says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Then he goes on to explain it. And the whole point of that passage was, you know, he was answering the question, you know, what about Israel? They're the children of God. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to Gentile Christians in Rome. But there's still the, 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 the Jewish question. What about them? Is there a different standard for them? Because they're God's chosen people. That's clear in the Old Testament, which is what the Scripture was to the New Testament writers. And, and Paul is saying... Not everybody who lived in Israel, not everybody who was a, a uh, genetic descendant of Abraham is a Jew in God's eyes, but only those who believe, those who are of the faith. It's not just a New Testament concept, it's an Old Testament concept. There were people who were born of Abraham, there were people who were part of that race 
who, who God never considered Israel because they didn't believe. And this, and, and this, is, this is the world that David is speaking to. As for the saints who are upon the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David delights in those like himself who have been, who have responded to the grace of God, the love of God, the plan of God, and the law of God in faith. Okay? So, verse 4, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Now, uh, if you remember, I'm sure you do, going back from David backwards and, and forward, but certainly if you go back through uh, the pre-Kings era, the times of the judges, right after Joshua died, there was this period of uh, this constant up and down, this sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance we've talked about before. But what I want to focus on is that there was this uh, mingling of God's people with the surrounding nations. And it wasn't that God considered these races inferior. It's just that he considered their belief system wrong. And God knew that if they intermingled too much, that the Jews would be tempted and swayed to adopt some of these belief systems. And, and certainly that's exactly what happened. This is, a, this, is a, this is precisely what we see. All these foreign gods, all these pagan ideas creep in to God's people, God's family. And some of them were abhorrent. But it was the culture. It wasn't that, I've tried to make this point many times before, it wasn't that the Jews ever looked and thought, you know, those who worship Baal have a really good argument. Those who worship Dagon, their worldview really makes sense. It's just that they were in this culture. They liked the people, they liked the way they lived, and they're like, eh, we can accept some of this stuff. It's, and I, and I, I have a hard time believing. I'm not saying nobody ever did, but I just don't really think too many Jews, and I'm not talking about the Jews in God's eyes. I'm talking about the descendants of Abraham, those who thought they were Jews but really weren't. But even them, I don't think many of them would have said, I renounce Judaism because I am a worshiper of Baal. I am a worshiper of Dagon or whoever. They always thought they were Jews. But they would partake of these ceremonies. We would probably call them parties today. Celebrations. Just observances. Eh, this is just what we do because we're here. But David is saying, as a saint as one who is called out, as one who is separate. I'm not going to partake in this stuff. And he points out, and he uses some pretty, some pretty uh, stark language here when he says, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. This is Deuteronomy. You know, if you, you chase after another God, the blessings that God has promised are, are, are off. You know, the, 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 all bets are off. And in fact, the curses that God has promised are going to befall you. But when he says... Uh, their drink offerings of blood I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips. He's talking about something very specific there. These, some of these religions actually killed their children, offered human sacrifices, and drank the blood. You know, the, the sacrifices and the feasts that, uh, that, that our Lord pro, uh, prescribed, there was wine to drink to signify the blood, just like we have with the Lord's table. This was in the Old Testament too. There was a purpose for the blood, but you didn't drink it. 
But in these pagan ceremonies, they drank it. And, and David said, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And I think he was referring to people in his culture who had something to do with it, even if they considered themselves Jews, even if they weren't converting to Baalism or whatever. David is saying, I'm going to remain separate from that stuff. Now, uh, verse 5, he says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Uh, this I really love for two very similar reasons. And one is the order that he presents these things. Here's David who has, in terms of his earthly lot, he's inherited a bunch. He's got a lot of property. He's got rank. He's got privilege. But the first thing he says is, you are my inheritance. You're my portion. You are what's important to me. This is what makes life worth living. Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. And then he says, you maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. The lines have fallen to me. In parent, uh, uh, this is a reference to when they divided the land in Joshua's day. When they went into the promised land, after Moses died, they had to divide the land uh, according to tribes. And this is what we see. But the tribes also had to apportion this land according to families. All right? Uh, and so everybody got a certain amount according to the lot that was cast. And David is saying, the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. I am, I am satisfied with where things have landed for me. But he knows it's not chance. He knows that God has orchestrated this stuff. Yeah, you better believe the lions have fallen in pleasant places. He's the king, and it's good to be the king. He's got power. He's got property. And there's nothing bad about that. We're going we're gonna to come back to that idea here in a little bit. Well, toward the end, actually. All right? Uh, but when he says, yes, I have a good inheritance, he's not just talking about his future spiritual inheritance. He's talking about the here and now. And this is kind of where some of this psalm goes toward the end. It's, it's dispelling this notion that uh, and we've talked about it many times before, the idea that, well, the, the true idea of Christianity is for everything to be as bad and weak and as much lack and struggle as possible in this life. And that's what qualifies us for the greatest blessings in the next life. And I would challenge you to say, uh, to, to, I would challenge you and ask you, where, where is the scripture that says that? Here's David, who's about to say something about the next life, who's saying, man, the lions have followed me in pleasant places here and now. I'm satisfied. I have a good inheritance. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. That's Yahweh. I will bless Yahweh who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. And this is one of those deals, you've heard me talk about this, where uh, and this is more of a New Testament thing than an Old Testament thing. There are people who have taught over the years that every time you see the word heart, that means the word spirit. It's not true. It's not true even in the New Testament. But here, if you want to give a, uh, if you want to do a very word-for-word uh, -word translation, that word heart, anybody know what that word really is? It's kidneys. It's talking about your guts, your inner, your your innermost self. Okay. 
And so what was it? So he says, oh, God, you instruct me and my kidneys instruct me. You instruct me and my guts, my innermost self instructs me. What's more important? Well, obviously God, but what's he saying? I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also, my innermost being, my guts, and also instruct me in the night season. So what are we supposed to follow, our gut or God? This is a beautiful thing. This is spoken by a man who has feasted and fed on the word of God. What has he put in his gut? What is in his heart? If you have filled your heart with the word of God, your heart will instruct you. It's one thing to say, I need answers so I will go to the Bible, and that's great. It's great that we know that, but it's another thing when we come to a crisis and we know what to do because the word of God is in us. And our hearts can instruct us because what's in our heart is the word of God. Amen? And this is David, obviously. And so uh, in verse, uh, where are we at? Oh, we have plenty of time. Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is, a, he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Setting the Lord always before you, that, that I believe is simply a reference to making it a priority to start your day, to approach every circumstance with what am I supposed to do as a believer in God in this situation. And this idea that he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. In one sense, it's I'm not going to be afraid because I know the Lord is right here. I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to stray because he is with me, he is for me, he is my guardian, he is my protector. But the other thing is this constant awareness of his presence. Because I know he's there, I'm not going to stray. I'm not going to do something else. I'm not going to do something that displeases him. I won't tell it again, but I have told the story many times of the uh, my episode as a young man, probably seven years old, when I set off all the firecrackers in my garage. Do you remember that story? Raise your hand if you remember that story. Okay, so most of you remember, so I'm not going to tell it again. And, and sorry for those of you who haven't heard it. You'll hear it before too long because I can't go too many months without telling that story. But the bottom line is I did something that I knew was wrong. And the reason I knew, but nobody ever told me specifically it was wrong. I just knew it was wrong because if my dad had been there, I wouldn't have done it. Okay. And this is it. This is kind of what David is saying here too. Uh, that uh, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I'm always aware of his presence. And that awareness of his presence uh, helps me decide to do the right thing in certain circumstances. Even if I'm tempted to do the wrong thing. All right? Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Now, if you read that verse, uh, if I read that verse, anyway, I don't know what you read. If I read that verse isolated like that, my flesh also will rest in hope. I'm like, yeah, he's just talking about our, uh, our bodies. You know, e- even here in our flesh, in this life, we can just rest, we can be in hope. Uh, it's, it's all about the here and now. But if you read it in context, we've got to read it with the next verse here. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. What he's saying is, my, my, therefore I, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Everything he's talked about up till now is everything God has done for him in the here and now. 
I'm satisfied with my lot in life. God has been good to me. And his very presence keeps me on the right path. And I'm satisfied with that. Moreover, I'm satisfied with God himself. And my flesh also will rest in hope. Meaning, in this context, even when I die, I'm okay with that. Because I know I'm not going to stay dead. This is verse 9 and 10. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, which is the abode of the dead. Uh, Wherever I go when I die, I'm not going to stay dead. You're going to resurrect me. So even in death, I am at rest because it's temporary. I don't stay dead. You're not going to leave my soul there. Now, it's interesting. I need to tell you that verse 8 through 11, Peter quoted every bit of this. In Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And he got up and preached that sermon. Where what 3,000 people got saved. Was it 3,000 people I think. 3,000 people got saved at this sermon. He quotes this whole passage. uh, Psalm 16 8 through 11. And. Peter shines some light on this. And shows us that what these verses are really talking about. Is Jesus Christ. When he says. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That is a prophetic statement about Jesus Christ. He's not just talking about how David is not just talking about how he himself is going to rise from the dead. But he's talking about how Jesus is. And I think it's important to recognize here that uh, these Psalms and... uh, and, and Proverbs and so much of the Old Testament. You know, when we, talk, when we talk about the law and when the New Testament writers talked about the law, they were really talking about the whole Old Testament. All right? I believe that those who wrote Scripture knew they were writing Scripture. And I'll explain that when we get into some other portions of the New Testament. Uh, but I believe... David, as he wrote this psalm, was writing some things from his heart. And at this point, the prophetic spirit took over and began to write through him some things about Jesus Christ. They were true about him, David, as well. But they were prophetic. Now, whether David knew precisely what he was talking about when it came to Jesus, I don't know. But I do believe he was so close to the heart of God that he was able to be used by the Holy Spirit to write these things about Jesus Christ. When he says next, For you will not leave leave my soul in shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Verse 11, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is one of my favorite verses. Because I think he's talking about two things. He's talking about the here and now. And he's talking about primarily, I believe, the hereafter. I think it is super important to recognize as believers that Christ, God the Son, promised to never leave us. Now we know he left. He went to the right hand of God the Father. But the Holy Spirit came. And this is just one more example of why the Trinity is true. If the Holy Spirit is here, then Jesus is here too, right? 
And if the Holy Spirit is here, if Jesus is here, uh, that means God is here. And that means we are at his right hand. Uh, we, uh, and what are you going to do? Say, well, I, I might be on his left hand. Well, we're in the presence of God. I think this is what he's saying here, right? In the presence of God. There is pleasure forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. I think that that promise applies to the here and now. That we should be able uh, and, and eager to enjoy life here and now. But we've got to be careful that we're not just enjoying the things that God has thrown into our lives. But we're with David saying, God, you are my portion. This is why life is great. This is why life is rich. Because you are in my life. But he does say this then. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I believe that is true for the here and now. But I believe even insofar as it is true for the here and now, it is just the slightest taste of what awaits us after this life when we are in the manifest presence of God the Father. Then we're going to know what real pleasure is like. I'm going to read you a passage here. from When I read that, that, that line there, pleasure at his right hand or pleasures forevermore, I always think of this passage from uh, the screw tape letters. Has anybody ever in here read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis? A lot of you have. I really, really recommend this book. It's not, listen, it's not doctrine, it's not theology, but it gives you what it is. is, a, is a, it's a fictional uh, book of letters written by a senior demon to a junior demon, counseling him and coaching him how to tempt a particular individual to whom he has been assigned. And like the second letter, the guy he's assigned to gets saved. So you, read, you start reading the second letter, and, and uh, Screwtape is writing his nephew, Wormwood, saying, uh, I note with great displeasure that your subject has become a Christian. Now what do we do? And so the rest of this book is all about how do we keep him from becoming a mature Christian? How do we keep him from becoming an effective Christian? How can we maybe derail his Christianity? And it really is brilliant. Now, Lewis himself said, I'm not sure he says it in the book, but he says it in other places, this is just a picture, you know, don't take this as doctrine. But it is so good. It really does uh, bring in all sorts of, uh, he approaches so many different things that we're dealing with even today. And he wrote this in the 60s, I think. Here in in one of his letters, he's writing, this is uh, when uh, his, when Wormwood's subject, who's a Christian, now has fallen in love. He's got this girl that he wants to marry. And this girl is a Christian, which is good. And here's what uh, Screwtape says. A promising line is the following. Now that he is in love, a new idea of earthly happiness has arisen in his mind. And hence a new urgency in his purely petitionary prayers. That means prayers where you ask for something. About this war. Now let me back up here. This is during World War II. All right, he's got a draft number. And what he's talking about is, now that he's fallen in love, this guy's going to be praying that he doesn't get drafted or that his draft number doesn't come up until he's able to get married and enjoy the pleasures of marriage, okay? Asking God for stuff. There's arisen in his mind a, a new urgency in his purely petitionary prayers about this war and other such matters. Now is the time for raising intellectual difficulties about prayer of that sort, False spirituality is always to be encouraged. 
on the seemingly pious ground that praise and communion with God is true prayer, humans can often be lured into direct disobedience to the enemy. The enemy in this sentence is God because this is a demon writing the the letter. So let me reread this. On the seemingly pious ground that praise and communion with God is true prayer, humans can often be lured into direct disobedience to God who, in his usual flat, commonplace, uninteresting way, has definitely told them to pray for their daily bread and the recovery of their sick. You will, of course, conceal from him the fact that the prayer for daily bread, interpreted in a spiritual sense, is really just as crudely petitionary as it is in any other sense. What's he saying here? This is so brilliant, and it is so on target. He's saying that the devil has talked people into saying, into believing that if you are praying for anything that will make you happy here and now, then you're not spiritual. If you're praying for a need that you have, a physical need, if you're praying for, to God uh, to work something out to your benefit, that's all carnal. When, even when Jesus said, pray for your daily bread, which he did, give us this day our daily bread. Well, we're to interpret that in a spiritual sense. This is what the world says. We pray for healing. Well, it's not physical healing, okay? It's, it's, it's a relationship healing. It's a spiritual healing. And what he says here at the end is, even if that's what it is, it's still a petitionary prayer. You're still praying for yourself. It's still selfish. Hide that from him. And hide also from him the fact that Jesus himself commanded you to pray for your daily bread and to pray for healing for the sick. He said, and isn't that brilliant? We're going to trick them into disobeying God in this clear command. And the way we're going to trick them is to, is to elevate their idea of spirituality above the petition. You know, most prayer is petition, and that's of God. I was reading that, and because I'm reading it, I got digging into uh, screw tape, and I was reading through some other stuff, and I came across this other passage. Here's what it says. This is, this is, this is actually uh, more to the point of what we're looking at here in verse 11, when he says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It says here, he, this, this is screw tape talking about God. He says, he is a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Ugh, I don't even think he has the least inkling of that high and austere mystery to which we rise in the miserific vision. He's vulgar. This is screw tape talking about God. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working, Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. 
nothing is naturally on our side. Man, I read that and I almost want to cry. All the stuff that this is, this is a demon lamenting the fact that everything God put in the world is so good. And since demons can't create anything, they've got to take something like, like work and twist that into something. Oh, work is a drudgery. Work stinks. Oh, why do we have to work? Or everything that we have to do. Even people complain about sleep. My son feels that way sometimes. Why do we have to sleep? you felt that way before, haven't you? Yeah, we could get so much more done if we didn't have to sleep. Sleep's an interruption. It's so much more fun we could have. <laughs> Why can't we sleep? Yeah, there we go. Oh. All these things that God filled the world with, and he delights in our enjoying these things. But they are just a reflection of the things we're going to enjoy. Now, praise and worship, you can be, uh, praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. Did Jesus say there would be suffering? Did he say there would be persecution? He absolutely did. Did he say there would be no joy and no enjoyment in life? No, he didn't. Okay? There are going to be things in this life that we don't enjoy. But don't let that drag you into this idea that this whole life is supposed to be a drudgery, a hell on earth, as it were, just so we'll appreciate heaven more. I promise you, no matter how good your life is on this earth, it is nothing compared to the world that awaits us. At the same time, don't fall into the trap that this world is supposed to be so great that it is literally heaven on earth. That's not God's plan either. There is supposed to be a hope, a blessed hope. The resurrection is what we are looking forward to. Every good thing, man, let's enjoy it. Let's celebrate it. But let's don't cling to it so hard that we're not eager to go to our true home where true pleasures await for how long? Forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.